Dirk about Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Ladies and gentlemen, this is probably going to be one of the best episodes of the Paracast ever. David and I want to take the pleasure of introducing someone who's going to be our co-host for this episode. He's Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes. He's a regular participant in the Paracast forums at forum.theparacast.com. And he helped us gather some very special people to talk with us today. Robert, you have the floor. Well, thank you for having me back on. Uh, as you know, uh, I have been researching nuclear weapons-related UFO activity for about 35 years now. I've interviewed well over 100 former and retired or retired Air Force personnel who were involved in incidents where UFO activity was occurring at missile sites or nuclear weapons storage areas or uh, other nuclear facilities. I wanted to introduce... Uh, gentlemen who were gracious enough to join us today. Uh, Bob Salas is a former Air Force officer who was involved in a very dramatic UFO incident at Malmstrom Air Force Base in March of 1967 uh, at a period when my father was stationed there as well. Uh, we have also have on with us uh, another Air Force officer, Bruce Fenstermacher, who had uh, a similar experience uh, at F.E. Warren Air Force Base near Cheyenne, Wyoming, in, uh, we think, 1976, as best as can be, re be reconstructed. And finally, we have Pat McDonough, who was a, uh, I'm not sure the proper term, Pat, but uh, he worked with surveying nuclear missile sites so that they uh, would be properly, properly uh, aligned for missile launches. And he'll describe the incident that he experienced about a month before I moved to Malmstrom with my family uh, in September of 67. And uh, I think each of these people have little pieces of the puzzle. Uh, I have, as I've indicated, in, uh, interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of persons who, uh, from the early 1960s through the mid-1990s, were involved in incidents where, at a minimum, UFOs were monitoring our nuclear weapons sites and on occasion were actually interfering with the functionality of those sites. So uh, I'll let uh, David or Gene decide who we'd like to speak with first. Well, you know what? I just want you to refresh our listeners' memories, David and I, Robert, and that is about UFOs monitoring nuclear facilities. Can you give us kind of a brief overview of that before we get into the case histories of our other guests? Sure. In 1967, my father was stationed at Malmstrom Air Force Base, and he worked in a building called the SAGE Building, which was uh, choked with both Air Force and FAA radar personnel who were involved. Uh, the Air Force personnel were involved in a system, computer-assisted radar system that was designed to monitor uh, North American airspace in the event that war broke out with the Soviet Union. Um, they were to hopefully track Soviet bombers and missiles. In any case, uh, it became uh, clear that in the spring of 67, there were unusual aerial objects flying around Malmstrom on multiple occasions. Uh, I was aware of one I saw at the uh, Malmstrom Air Traffic Control Tower, five objects being tracked on radar. Uh, when I asked my father about it, he made inquiries without my asking him to and found out that these objects were indeed maneuvering near nuclear missile sites at a location called Judith Basin. 
which is both a region and a county southeast of Great Falls. Um, in any case, that sparked my interest in the subject of UFOs at uh, nuclear weapons sites, and by the early 70s, I began informally interviewing, later on a much more formal basis, former and retired Air Force personnel who were involved in similar incidents. And the more I investigated, the more I found out that the incidents at Malmstrom were not unique. And in fact, I know now that the earliest UFO activity at ICBM sites, at nuclear missile sites, goes back to the early 1960s, both at F.E. Warren Air Force Base and uh, Altus Air Force Base in Oklahoma and Walker Air Force Base near Roswell, New Mexico. And what we have from the earliest reports to the latest reports in the 1990s are a very similar type of activity. Uh, what are usually described as saucer-shaped craft, sometimes cigar-shaped craft, will suddenly fly in out of nowhere at high rates of speed, very erratic flight patterns patterns and they will maneuver near either the launch control facilities or the launch sites themselves, the missile sites that are scattered around the launch control facility and come in at a higher rate of speed, instantaneously stop and hover directly above either the missile sites or the missile launch control facility. And uh, as Bob Salas will tell you, on some occasions uh, shortly after that, maneuver takes place and the object's right there, uh, missiles begin to malfunction. And uh, it's quite clear that, in my opinion anyway, this is a premeditated act on the part of whomever is flying these craft. And uh, my view is that whoever they are are, in effect, uh, providing a demonstration of their ability to interfere with a nuclear launch. Uh, and uh, there is at least one report from the former Soviet Union describing an incident such as this. So uh, they're not playing favorites. They seem to be engaged in this type of activity on both sides of the ocean. And my view is that they are wagging a finger at both Washington and Moscow and, in effect, saying, you know, you better think twice. You're playing with fire. Uh, if you actually launch these missiles as you're threatening to do all during the Cold War era, you know, it could be the end not only of human civilization, but because of the radiological consequences, the entire environment that the planet could be polluted for thousands of years. Uh, so some of this is factual, some of it is speculative on my part as to what it adds up to, but the accounts themselves from the former and retired uh, missile personnel, missile guards, missile maintenance personnel, missile targeting personnel are quite real. And I emphasize that these are the persons that the U.S. government uh, trusted and empowered with the operation or guarding of nuclear weapons, weapons of mass destruction uh, during the Cold War era. How they were vetted, they were rigorously checked, background checks, uh, their psychological stability uh, was determined to be, you know, certainly within the realm of normal, so to speak, that these weren't people who would do something uh, like a terrorist might with a nuclear weapon in their possession, they were all vetted as very competent, credible, reliable people. And now, belatedly, years or decades later, these same highly trusted people are coming forward independently and describing incidents where unidentified flying objects have come in and monitored our nukes and in some cases shut them down. And I think that is certainly a development that's worthy of uh, public attention. Last question before we go to Robert Salas, and that is, do you notice that when the Cold War officially ended, and some feel it's kind of ratcheting up again, did we see fewer UFO cases of this nature? 
I have always uh, emphasized that it's hard to quantify these things simply because I'm I'm getting sources on a catch as catch can basis. Uh, if everyone who had one of these experiences came forward and candidly, candidly described it for you know researchers or journalists, we would have a much better sense of the, the number of incidents and the frequency of the incidents. But given the fact that these are kept in great secrecy and uh, either just by my efforts or other researchers' efforts seeking out these people and hopefully get them on the record, you have a, a very skewed sort of database where you you don't know. I mean, something could have happened at Mount to Air Force Base last night, and we might not know about it for 20 years. Um, I would say that I have sources, a man named Jeff Goodrich, who's a retired uh, Air Force person who has told me he was aware of UFO activity in the mid-90s, a good five or six years after the end of the Cold War, uh, up around from Air Force Base. Uh, so it does continue to occur. I talked to a civilian up near Conrad, Montana, who said uh, as late as December of 2006, he saw UFOs hovering over full sites that were located around his farm, his family farm. Uh, which is literally surrounded by missile sites. And uh, so we have evidence of this type of activity occurring even within the last uh, two years or so. Robert, quick, quick historical framework question. Is there evidence that there were UFO sightings surrounding some of the earlier nuclear testing that happened in the 40s? Yes. Um, in fact, in the late 1970s, a researcher named Dr. Bruce McAbee succeeded in getting about 1,500 pages of FBI documents uh, through Freedom of Information Act. A number of those documents related to UFO activity at Los Alamos, which was the satellite UFO, or excuse me, uh, nuclear weapons lab that uh, created nuclear weapons, atomic weapons in the 1940s. We know from declassified FBI number as well as uh, Air Force documents that as early as December 1948, Los Alamos seemed to be the focal point for UFO activity, at least in the continental United States. Uh, other sightings occurred at nearby Sandia Base in Albuquerque, where I was born, coincidentally, and uh, at other sites, including Oak Ridge, which uh, produced uranium and plutonium it's in Tennessee, and then up at the Hanford site in Washington State, which produced plutonium for the first atomic weapons. So even the by, uh, you know, as early as the late 40s and early 50s, there was a pattern of UFO activity at nuclear weapons-related sites. What I have done in my book is devoted a whole chapter to the testing in the South Pacific and uh, in Nevada. Uh, smaller weapons were tested north of Las Vegas, and the larger hydrogen bombs were tested in the South Pacific in the early and uh, mid-50s, even into the early 60s. And I now have located and interviewed, interviewed a number of sources, either sailors or Marines, who were on the ships out in the tests in the Pacific who described UFO sightings. Um, we also have talked to uh, Air Force personnel who were involved in the, the flights that were sent into the, the mushroom clouds to monitor radiation levels. They, too, are reporting UFOs, you know, right in the midst of the testing. Uh, so this, this pattern is pervasive, it's widespread, and uh, it's continuing. Do you think, perhaps, Robert, that maybe the recent decision from Attorney General Holder to allow more declassification of documents will make it easier to get information about this stuff? 
if you'd asked me 20 years ago, I would have said yes, but I'm much more pessimistic now. Um, it, to me, it seems as if the UFO information, certainly the national security-related information, including all these nuclear uh, weapons-related incidents, is so sensitive. Uh, I would be very surprised if any of it is voluntarily released under the FOIA. The most comprehensive document dealing with UFO sightings and missile sites from Malmstrom Air Force Base in uh, November of 75 was actually leaked by a, uh, an analyst with the Defense Intelligence Agency. And that, uh, because that information was in effect uh, in the public domain, the horse was out of the barn uh, when researchers filed for the formal documents. Even then, uh, NORAD and the Air Force only released uh, excerpts from NORAD uh, logs. They didn't even release the actual documents from all the where all the data was drawn from. So my, I'm convinced that that very interesting and being document not been leaked initially, it never would have been voluntarily released under the FOIA. Uh, in the early 80s, I attempted to get OSI, uh, Office of Special Investigations documents, from the Air Force about UFO incidents at Malmstrom Air Force Base, and I was told those documents didn't even exist. Um, when we talked to Bob Dallas, he'll say that uh, he, he, in fact, was interviewed by OSI, and uh, obviously those inter interrogators, those uh, interview records have to exist somewhere. So I'm not optimistic that even with the best intentions in the in the current administration that there's going to be a great uh, shift in this, this particular type of information being released. Coming up next, we'll be talking to the witnesses themselves. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. Robert Salas, Patrick McDonough, Bruce Fenstermacher, and of course, we have our special co-host for this episode, Robert Hastings. Bob Salas, let's get to you here, because we've heard... Some details of the Maelstrom case that you were involved in. Can you give us a little bit about your background and how you happened to be in the position to see a UFO? Uh, yes. 
1965, I volunteered for missile duty. I was actually an aircraft controller at Tinsley Air Force Base. And, uh, but I went through the training, uh, took uh, almost a year, nine months or so. I wound up in uh, the Great Falls, Montana in uh, August of 1966 uh, as a missile launch officer going in first as a deputy and getting qualified with uh, my first commander was uh, actually, I think uh, Fred Miles was my second commander, but we were qualified, I think, in um, September of 66, uh, if I recall, right? So uh, we were we were a crew uh, assigned to the 490th Squadron in the uh, 341st Missile Wing. And uh, as such, we were, uh, of course, scheduled to go out on, on alert duty uh, approximately um, every three or four days. And uh, so that's uh, basically how I got into the business. Okay, moving uh, to the actual event in question here, when did it happen? Give us some background. Okay, well, this was in uh, March, and I think we've kind of uh, narrowed the date down at March 24th now. Uh, initially, I thought I was at uh, what we're going to call Echo Flight, but uh, later I found out I was really at Oscar Flight. We do have uh, a documentation uh, on the date of the Echo incident, and so I'll refer to those two, uh, Echo and the Oscar incidents. Uh, I was at Oscar Flight, <laughs> uh, and we'll say uh, we're pretty sure it was March 24th, 1967. And uh, this occurred uh, early in the morning. Uh, I know that because the uh, guard, main guard upstairs, we call him the flight security controller, uh, called down and uh, said that they were seeing some strange lights flying over the uh, LCS launch control facility, you know, making erratic movements, uh, no noise, flying very rarely, and uh, it just didn't seem like airplanes. <laughs> and so. Uh, it was uh, early morning, it was dark, and uh, didn't think much of that call, and basically we disconnected the call, and, and then five minutes later we get another call. This time the, the guard is uh, very frightened, uh, and he tells me he's looking out the window uh, of his uh, location there upstairs. We're, we're, we're 60 feet underground, by the way, about 60, 65 feet underground. And, uh, He's looking out the window, sees this uh, glowing red object hovering above the front gate, and it's just sitting there, pulsating, glowing red. Couldn't give me a, a detailed description of what it looked like uh, because apparently it was too bright, uh, but he was scared to death. Uh, he had all the guards out there with the weapons drawn, wanted me to tell him what to do next. <laughs> so um, I think I told him to make sure that Nothing got in the perimeter fence, and basically hung up. He said uh, one of the guards got injured. It was it turned out to be a minor injury, but uh, one of the guards cut his hand on the barbed wire we had on the fence. We well, yeah, hung up and uh, went to tell my commander about Fred Milo. Still unwell. Yeah, has come forward as another witness uh, supporting the case. And at any rate, uh, I started to talk to him about it, and the. Um, all of a sudden, we hear a lot of bells and whistles going off, plaxons, and, and we look at the board, and our lights are grow like a Christmas tree. Uh, normally, uh, we've got uh, green lights uh, on the board showing that the missiles are 
in ready position, ready condition, ready to launch, and uh, the missile started going red, no go, no go condition. So in that, within a matter of seconds, I recall we lost just about all of them. And so uh, went through our procedures. We also had some um, security alarm lights, which meant that uh, security could have been compromised and we were obligated to send uh, our guards out to a couple of the sites because of that. So uh, uh, Fred Bywald called the command post um, and reported the incident and went through procedures of interrogating the system uh, to see what, what was the problem was. And of course, uh, this was in, within seconds of that last phone call, so the object was uh, still up there while this occurred. But uh, after I went through a checklist, I called back up uh, uh, to dispatch some guards and uh, uh, asked about the object, and uh, uh, guards had gone at a high rate of speed. It just took off. Yeah. Quick question for you. Um, the no-go state, under normal conditions, what would be the parameters that would potentially trigger a no-go state on the missiles? Well, the most significant would probably be that uh, the weapon was no longer properly targeted. And I, th I think that's basically what happened here. Uh, we got guidance and control system failure readouts on the missiles, which meant uh, the guidance system was inoperative or improperly calibrated. So that's one of the major ones, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, loss of power, but uh, again, we had a very reliable system. We had full redundancy on the power. We had uh, commercial power. We had. Uh, a backup generator and there were batteries even backing that up. So it was very rare. Let me put it this way. I was there on duty for three years uh, doing the same thing. And uh, it was very rare that we lost a missile other than scheduled maintenance, of course, when they mm -hmm. shut it down purposefully. But uh, losing one missile was uh, very rare, but losing 10 missiles at a time was extremely, extremely uh, rare. Did the no-go lights light up in sequence, or did it basically all happen at once? It, it happened within seconds uh, mm -hmm. of each other, the lights went on. I, I don't know if it went down uh, sequentially or not, but, uh, you know, within two seconds, uh, about all of them were down. I recall that all of them went down. Uh, my commander, my Wald, said uh, he thought it was something like eight of them that went down. Hmm. Now, as far as this red light topside, uh, you said when you called the guard back up to, to find out what was going on up there, he indicated that the red light had flown away at high speed. At the time, did you try to basically um, figure out the timeline of that when that happened? Did the light fly away as the no-go states were coming up, or did it happen afterwards? Were you able to determine that? No, everything happened, uh, I would say, within a minute. Because right. I, I, uh, I got up on the guard, uh, my uh, commander was taking a little guard time about this strange situation upstairs. For all I knew, it could have been a, a Paris attack, and uh, we were under attack, and mm -hmm. uh, it just didn't sound very. <laughs> it sounded like something I ought to report to him right away. So uh, I'm sure I, you know, we, we talked uh, just briefly before the missiles started going down. So all that happened within a minute, and, what, and then we went through our procedures, which didn't take too long. Say another maybe five minutes, my God.
And you were able to get the missiles back. Uh, so, so in terms of now, you've got no goes on these things. What was the the elapsed time between that happening and being able to restore systems back to normal, assuming that you did? Oh, well, we we did ourselves. We had mm-hmm. to uh, bring in uh, maintenance crews. You know, maintenance crews were in, and they had to come out and retarget the missiles. Like I said, uh, the indications we were getting was. Uh, Against and consistent, and guidance and control system failure. So they had to physically come out and restart and retarget the missiles. Um, and we're talking about essentially 1967 computer technology. All right. So I'm assuming at that point that we're talking about magnetic based, you know, magnetic tape based computer systems with some amount, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, not being an expert on computer systems of that time period. What would be the kind of thing, what, what would essentially cause the targeting systems to go down? Would this be the kind of thing that electromagnetic activity could, could cause, potentially? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. Air Force, uh, of course, uh, she had uh, a heavy investigation of this, and I know from another witness I talked to personally that uh, uh, this investigation of what caused the missiles to shut down um, mm-hmm. was going on at least through 1972. So wow. uh, you're asking a very, <laughs> a very important question. Uh, there was a, we did contact uh, a member of the Boeing team, um, uh, his name escapes me right now, but uh, who did some bench tests and was able to determine that uh, there was a a certain electromagnetic pulse that would have upset uh, the guidance system. However, that sort of pulse, uh, just to put it in perspective, would have had to come uh, from uh, exterior to the launch control facility, in other words, right. to 65 feet of earth, and then along, uh, and then penetrate uh, shielded cable. By the way, the cable was triply shielded, I later found out and then inject that pulse into the system somehow. So we're talking about a very uh, complex or complicated uh, process here. These control computers were located in the same general vicinity of the missiles, or were they in a separate enclosure or pod? Uh, as I understood, as I understand it, you know, this has been a long time since I've been real familiar with the system, but we had all the control computers at the launch facility, and what we did was to send a signal to the uh, to the computers at the at the launch sites themselves and send any, for example, a launch signal. So all, we we had a whole we had lots of computers. Uh, we didn't have any magnetic tape computers. We had, I remember, uh, you know. Uh, computers with tubes in them because all, all our computer racks had to be air-cooled. And it was pretty mm-hmm. bad. chilly down there sometimes. So when you have these crews then coming in to debug what happened, to sort of try to, to figure out the specifics, were they informed about the incident to any uh, depth of detail in terms of what had happened? Uh, I think, uh, you know, Robert... Uh, Hastings might be able to add a little bit to this, but I, I do believe we do have witnesses uh, told us that um, in some cases they were told not to talk about you know, the missiles going down under strange circumstances, and in other cases uh, they weren't even you know told anything, just you know do your job, put the missiles back up. So 
I, I really can't speak to that aspect of it. Most of those crews went out after uh, we were relieved. As I said, we uh, were relieved later that morning in order to uh, back to the base talk to our squadron commander. I can address that. This is Robert Hastings. Um, in 1992, um, I met a man named Bob Jamison, who was involved with the Oscar flight restart that Bob has been describing. And mm -hmm. Bob Jamison was a Minuteman, uh, what the Air Force calls a combat targeting team officer. Uh, his job was basically to go in and retarget missiles uh, if they had dropped offline for any reason whatsoever uh, and no longer would have hit their targets had they been launched. Uh, sometimes that could just be routine mechanical failures, but Bob Jamison told me in 1992, I later interviewed him uh, at length, um, that he was on alert. Uh, he was at home, but, you know, was on alert status, got a call late at night. Uh, when Bob says this happened early in the morning, he means, I think, just after midnight perhaps or thereabouts. Uh, in any case, Bob Jamin says that on the evening of March 24th, 1967, he said it could have been 10 p.m., 11, or midnight. But uh, they got the call at home that uh, an entire flight of missiles had gone down, and he was to get down to the missile maintenance hangar as quickly as possible. Uh, Bob Jamison, I described this at length in my book, uh, he said that even as he walked in the door, a couple of his uh, colleagues said, uh, you know, you're not going to believe this, but they're saying UFOs are involved in the shutdowns. And so there were all these rumors swirling, and he went to uh, a room that was a temporary command post and found out that there were uh, officers talking to either the base commander or the wing commander. The wing commander would have controlled the missile squadrons, uh, but in any case, one of those two commanders was at another site, not at Oscar Flight, but down at a place called Belt, a little town southeast of uh, Great Falls, southeast of, east of the base. And apparently, according to Jameson, based on these radio communications, two-way radio communications, there had been a, a, a second UFO that had landed in this canyon near Belt. And either the base commander or the wing commander was on the site with other Air Force personnel, and they were trying to determine what to do. In any event, uh, while they were waiting, uh, Bob Jameson said that ordinarily, if you were called to go and restart missiles, you would have been sent to the field immediately to get the missiles up quickly as possible. But he said that there was actually a situation where the, the missile targeting teams, uh, not only his team but other teams, were told they would have to wait at the hangar uh, until reports from the field ceased of UFO activity. So they were actually in this briefing told that UFOs were responsible for the, the Oscar flight shutdown. And he said that they were ordered if they were out heading to the field, heading to Oscar flight, if they saw a UFO, they were to immediately report it. And he said that uh, we were also told that if we were at the site, missile sites bringing up the missiles and we saw a UFO, we were ordered to get down into what's called the personnel access hatch, get underground, leave the guard up top uh, who would communicate with the base as to what was occurring. So the briefers at the missile maintenance hangar were explicit to the targeting teams 
that there was UFO activity and that they were involved in the the, the, the full flight Oscar flight shutdown. Hmm. So uh, I, I can also tell you that Jameson has also said that approximately two weeks after the Oscar flight went down, another flight uh, southwest of the base, he believes it was India flight, in the middle of the day, there was again reports of UFO activity and four or five missiles went down. And he said once again before going to the field, they were given once again what he calls the UFO briefing and told that UFOs were involved. And again, if you saw one on the way to the site, reported if you saw one at the site, get into the hatch, the underground personnel access hatch, and uh, you know have the guard report report back to the base what was occurring. So there was no question. There was no, you know, hemming or hawing. There was explicit orders given to the teams going out to the restart at Oscar uh, that there were UFOs involved and keep, keep your eyes open. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. We're talking with Robert Hastings, Bruce Fenstermacher, Patrick McDonough, and Robert Salas, and we're talking a lot about the UFO and nukes and sightings related to nuclear installations. Bruce and Patrick, do you folks have any questions before we move on? Oh, no, no. Not for me either. Okay. So I have, a, I have a quick question for Robert Hastings. Robert, what you're saying then is that the frequency of these types of encounters was significant enough that there were some form of informal procedures drawn up to, to deal with this. Presumably this was all oral and nothing was written down, correct? Uh, I think it was a combination of the two in terms of recording the events. 
but as best as I have reconstructed the situation, and again, this is a catch-as-catch-can basis, uh, but I've talked to uh, three or four former or retired Air Force officers who were at Walker Air Force Base in New Mexico in a 1963-64 time frame, and uh, they were describing repeated incidents of uh, UFOs hovering over their sites, missile sites, Atlas sites, and also moving from site to site at high rates of speed, all of this being observed by the guards topside. None of those persons were aware of any instance, or at least they were, were told of any instance involving missile malfunctions at that time. But another enlisted man I spoke with, uh, who was a site facilities technician, said that he was debriefed by OSI. So I think uh, in the context of what was occurring even in the early 60s and then later at Minot Air Force Base in 66, about a year before the Malmstrom incident, and again at Air Ellsworth Air Force Base, South Dakota in 66, about a year before the Malmstrom incidents, all of these incidents would have been, uh, you know, there was precedent for the type of activity that Bob Salas is describing, uh, certainly, if not the shutdowns of the missiles, certainly the presence of UFOs near the missile sites. So even though uh, the debriefers, the, you know, the people that debrief Bob and his commander and the others probably kept straight faces and didn't didn't give them a lot of feedback. Uh, it's quite clear that they uh, they had heard this story before and uh, were quite well aware that these things were ongoing at a number of strategic air command bases in the 1960s. I was actually going to ask you, uh, uh, Bob, about the nature of that debriefing, but but go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, very quickly, the debriefing uh, was with uh, my squadron commander, uh, uh, Colonel George Eldridge, and an uh, ex-World War II boy, B-17 pilot, uh, you know, a real tough, hardened veteran. And he was wise as a sheep when I went. <laughs> Specifically, what the heck was going on, thinking it could have been some kind of an exercise, but he he didn't know. And... Uh, there was a man in AFOSI there, and uh, he was, uh, you know, uh, vaguely interested in our story. But mainly he wanted us to sign a non-disclosure document, which was, uh, you know, he told us this incident was classified secret. We were never to talk about it, so, which was kind of strange because we were all already cleared for a blood top secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... We didn't know why we needed to sign it anymore, <laughs> but uh, he insisted on it. But what I wanted to interject was that uh, we have since uncovered uh, pretty good evidence. The Totten Committee had heard about the ECHO incident, which had occurred about a week earlier on March the 16th, and in fact sent uh, a representative, I think it was in here in a minute, uh, but uh, representative of the Con Committee, uh, to the Malmstrom Air Force Base to find out more about uh, the rumors uh, about UFOs involved in the Echo flight shutdown. And, uh, and so, you know, the the, deep, the timing of that, uh, I'm not completely sure, but it could have been right around this time, about a week, week or so after, and, uh, and so the, the whole base was highly sensitized uh, to the fact that the kind that it was around, and of course the Air Force, that's the last thing they wanted was kind uh, investigators looking into this UFO incident. Hmm. So any kind of external analysis was something that was frowned upon. You say you signed a non-disclosure that was above and beyond any kind of um, 
paperwork that already existed, obviously, uh, in the position you were in, and you're saying that you had above top secret um, clearance already. When you signed this document, were there any what you would consider overly intimidating words or tones deployed uh, to, to scare you? Well, uh, again, the, the guy who told us, I don't recall the, de- you know, the details of what was in the document, but I, I do recall this call from my AFOSI saying, uh, uh, you are absolutely not to talk to uh, specifically your house or anybody else, including any of the airmen involved, uh, any of your fellow officers. Uh, you know, he went on and on about that, and he emphasized that. Any time mm-hmm. to the point where I, I was uh, intimidated when uh, some of those guards uh, talked about uh, upstairs and saw this thing, uh, tried to contact me later on, and they begged me to come see him and talk about this with them. Uh, you know, they, they were just uh, completely uh, frightened by the whole thing and uh, mm-hmm. want to know if I could explain this to them. Mm-hmm. At any rate, I, you know, I had refused. I had refused to even talk to him about it. At what point, Bob, did you decide, you know what, I'm going to talk about it? I didn't decide until uh, 1994 when uh, I was in a bookstore and uh, picked up Timothy Gears' book, uh, Top Secret. And on page 300 or 301 in that book, uh, it talked about the echo shut it down uh, while UFOs were overhead. I just kind of got excited. I, I, at that point, I didn't realize exactly what flight I was at when my incident occurred. I knew it happened in 67. And so I thought, well, that, that's what happened to me, and that was my incident. And so uh, I'm going to see if uh, the Air Force has declassified it. So that's when we, uh, I got hold of Jim Klutz, who's my uh, investigator on the case, and uh, and he wrote to uh, Air Force and uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, and and we didn't say anything about UFOs, but we asked about this incident where this uh, was shut down under strange circumstances, and uh, Air Force wrote back said, uh, well, this is classified, but since you wrote and it's been so long, we're going to declassify it, and we're going to send some documents, and that's, that opened the floodgate for me to... Uh, Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says... Separating signal from noise. It's just fourteen ninety five plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast T-shirt, here's all you have to do: visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time: that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast T-shirt. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We are talking to Robert Salas, Robert Hastings, Bruce Fenstermacher, Patrick McDonough, and obviously it's only a two-hour show, and you kind of think maybe we needed four hours, but perhaps we should at least now 
we can go back to Bob's case later. Talk to our other guests who are champing the bit, I'm sure, anxious to get started with their particular involvement in this thing. Bruce Fenstermacher, welcome to the Paracast. Can you tell us about your particular case? Sure. It's really wonderful to hear Robert Salison in person, if you will. The reason I came out, if you will, is because I watched Larry King, where Rob Salas told a story and was kind of ridiculed by one of the other guests. This was, I don't know, a year or so ago. But my case is, uh, and I'm jealous of Mr. Salas because he knows his exact date, and I'm pretty sure it was in the fall of 1976. First of all, it was 1975, but I was on duty uh, with my deputy, who I'll call Sam because I've not been able to contact him, and we were at Romeo site at the launch control facility at Romeo, and it was 2 o'clock in the morning, around 2 o'clock in the morning. And Excuse we me, before, got, I, before you go further, where is that located? What city is sure. it? Uh, that's located right outside of F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Beautiful downtown Cheyenne, Wyoming. Cold, but beautiful. <laughs> so does that give a location for you? That's fine. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, okay. I'm a little nervous because this is the first time I've really discussed this in public other than talking to Robert Hastings about this. But it was a fall night, around 2 o'clock in the morning. My deputy and I, who, I'm going to really try and keep calling him Sam because I haven't been able to contact him. We were trying to keep alert by listening to the radio conversation between our LCF manager, I'll call him Sergeant Jones, and the two SAT alert team members that were out and about. I'm not sure if they were just riding around checking on the sites, on the launch sites, or whether they were responding to a alarm, which happened a lot when the rabbits ran or there were tests going on there. And about 2 o'clock in the morning, our LCF manager, Sergeant Jones, said, uh, made contact with the team and said, stop the vehicle and get out of the car. And Sam and I looked at each other and said, this is strange. And they said, look around, see if you see anything. And no discussion of where to look or anything. And the two guys uh, said, no, we don't see anything. He said, look again. And then they said, holy something or other. And they said, there's a light. And uh, Sergeant Jones said, where is it? He said, up in the sky. It's, it's north of us, about eight or nine miles. And Jones said, well, where exactly? And the guy on the radio said, oh, it's, I think it's close to the launch control facility. And uh, it was. Sam and I looked at each other, and we got on the hotline to, the, to Sergeant Jones and said, what's, what's going on here? And he said, sir, above the facility, there's this white pulsating light. And every time the pulsations die down, I can see a red and blue light. And it's, you know, 100 feet or so above the site. I said, how big was it? He said, maybe 60 feet. So what does it look like? He said, it looks like a, a fat cigar. I remember that distinctly. And I said, well, keep us informed. And, uh, we had no idea what was going on. We didn't know if it was somebody testing the site for security or, or what. And we dispatched the two SAT team members to come back to the site. After 10 or 15 minutes, the uh, Sergeant Jones called down and said, it's moving away rather slowly, going down the access road. And 10 minutes later, he said it's stopping above one of our launch facilities, one of our silos. And it, according to him, it stayed there for quite a while. This time he called Mission Control and, and reported that this object was over our location and headed down towards one of the silos. And uh, they jokingly said, send the cops out there, and if it eats the cops, the SAT, the security alert team, 
and call us back. Otherwise, don't worry about it. <laughs> oh boy. And and that was the attitude we got for a while. It, you know, every hour or so we had conversation with the other four launch control facilities. Papa, Quebec, Romeo, Sierra, Tango, all would have a call every hour, and we announced what had happened, and we were laughed at. And then after we had the conference call, one of the flights that was Quebec, we were at Romeo. Quebec called us back and said, "Hey, our SAT team noticed those lights at our silos." And I asked them about where were they, and they were on the edge to where our location overlapped. So apparently this thing came from their silos to our area, and uh, they didn't report it. They didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> we called control about three or four more times total, and uh, finally insisted they uh, log it, because we were going to log this incident. and. Uh, we wanted them to log it, or we would wake up the base commander. And so they said they logged it. In, in the meantime, I ordered the SAT team to go to where the first site was that the light stopped over. And uh, they had to get gas, and they had to get equipment. And then it moved away. It, it ended up going over about three sites heading away from our launch control facility. And each time I ordered them to go there, and they never quite made it. Uh, their cars broke down on them at one time and, and so forth. They had more excuses than I could believe. Uh, Bruce, quick, quick question for you. Sure. When, it, when Sergeant Jones and his two men first sighted the object, about what distance were they from the object? Okay. So, uh, according to Sergeant Jones, it was right above the launch control facility. Mm -hmm. He said it was about 60 feet long and about 100 feet high. Now, in retrospect, I'm, I'm you know, when that thing is pulsating above you, it could have been larger and further away or smaller and closer. Yeah. But, but at what distance were they from the object? Oh, he was—he said he, he thought it was 60 feet away from them. They were very close, in other words. The law, Sergeant Joe's one. The right. SAT team was eight or nine miles away looking at it from eight or nine miles. And when I talked to Sergeant Jones the next day, we were heading back, but I stopped and talked to him not knowing we shouldn't have, but he was laying in a fetal position on a chair, scared to the high heavens, and he said he thought he was hallucinating, so that's why he asked the SAT team to pull over, stop, and, and check to see if they saw what he saw. He was scared to death, and, and Sergeant Jones made me promise that I wouldn't turn in the SAT team, but they were scared to death. Well, he told me that they said they were never going to go to one of those sites as long as that thing was there. Huh. A car it, broke down, they ran out of gas, whatever it took, they were not going to go there. So, hence the reason that they weren't able to quite get there, you, you feel, was that they didn't want to get near this thing. Oh, they wouldn't. They were, uh, because he told me that there were rumors that a long time ago a SAT team member got taken away by a UFO. I had not heard those rumors. Hmm. I was a skeptic. I still am skeptical about all these things, but right. I know what happened that night. I know that this young man was 100% positive he saw what he saw. Did uh, Sergeant Jones report that this thing made any sound? Absolutely not. No sound. Hmm. I mean, because I asked him. I said, because Sam and I were downstairs, and Sam was making calls to attack units to try and get 
as a former tech person, he was also a previously enlisted guy. He was trying, we were trying to get radar sightings. We were trying to do whatever we could because we were really curious about this. But there was absolutely no sound. They heard no sound. We thought it was a helicopter at first because it first moved slow. At the end of this, around 4, 4.30 in the morning, after going to a couple different sites, it had traveled fairly slow. And Sergeant Jones was watching this like a hawk because he was hyper. And he was even hyper the next morning when we went out. It suddenly zipped away, just whooshed away. I mean, it didn't make a noise, but he said it just was there and then went to a dot in the sky in, in a few seconds. But it did that. When it did that, there was no sonic boom, no noise at all. No, no. That was that was maybe 10, 15 miles away by that time. But the sonic boom, we certainly would have heard. But it just right. was totally silent. Now, question for you, technical question. Without you giving away any sensitive information, I think most people would presume that if you had any sort of aircraft of any type above a, a launch facility, that there would be in place certain procedures and mechanisms to, for example, scramble airplanes to try to, to track down and, and verify that there was something above a, a launch facility. I mean, one would assume that would be the case. Is that an accurate statement? I think that is. I think there are uh, procedures in place and protocols, but I don't think they, they believed us. I mean, I don't know what else we could have done as, as being persistent prior enlisted combat crew members to uh, get it reported, but you know, I don't, don't know why they didn't initiate something. I mean, we couldn't describe it as a helicopter. Or whatever. I quite frankly at first thought it was someone testing the security of the site. Right. Is it accurate to say that the radar systems that were in place at that time are ineffective at a you know below a certain altitude? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I let Sam make his calls, but at that low altitude, I didn't. In, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, it's not radar a lot of radar like in New York City or big cities. I don't expect the coverage area would have would have been there, but we tried and I didn't see anything, but I didn't expect to. Right. Now, were there any kind of formal reports made after this, this all happened? And you have multiple witnesses at this point. What was the process of the aftermath? Were there reports filed? All I know is what, what we reported. The... Uh, Team, the launch control facility team, the missile combat crew members from uh, Quebec, we rode out with them and we rode back with them. So we discussed with them. Later on, we found out we shouldn't have done that. But they were not going to say they saw anything. They refused to report it to the control center. They refused to report it when they went back. We talked to our ops officer and our commander, and they seemed surprised by it. If they weren't, then they were putting on a good face for me. But when we, every time we sent, they sent out crews, they had a crew departure meeting. And uh, at several of those, the incident was debriefed to the group. And uh, we were told not to talk about it and then that it never happened. It never happened. Any of you that were involved with it, it never happened. And never mention it. Don't talk about it. Hmm. The same thing I asked Bob Solace. In the way that they worded it to you, was there any um, above and beyond attempt to intimidate and or frighten you to make sure you didn't talk about it? No, it was an intimidating environment. SAC is an, an intimidating environment. And they were there giving us, in effect, direct orders. Uh, okay. 
I don't remember signing one of those statements. Non-disclosure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, but we may have. Or I remember Sam and I were called in and talked to, but uh, I don't remember signing anything. Right. It was clear they didn't want us to talk about it. In what sense was it clear? By what they said to you or the way they stared at you? Was there something that gave an indication? At the departure meeting, it was okay. clear. People that we they were in uniform, so they may or may not have been OSI people, but they were there and they said, you know, this is very serious. Uh, this did not happen. Do not talk about it. Do not talk about it to anybody. Do not talk about it amongst yourselves. And by the way, I never saw Sergeant Jones or the two SAT members at my launch control facility again. This is Robert Hastings. I'd like to uh, interject a couple of things regarding what Bruce Fenstermacher was saying. Um, I've established that uh, many, many guards, missile guards, have uh, specifically refused to report seeing UFOs because they were afraid of uh, losing their positions in the Air Force. Um, being given, uh, you know, less than desirable jobs if they reported something as strange as a UFO. There's actually a formal Department of Defense regulation called PRP, Personnel Reliability Program, which has very strict guidelines for the type of behavior that is expected from someone who works with nuclear weapons or guards nuclear weapons. And the guards have told me that, you know, I saw the thing right before my eyes. It was huge. It was bright. It was right over the missile site and I wasn't going to report it because I didn't want to lose my PRP. And, uh, you know, on the way back to the debriefing, I imposed, you know, I, I discussed it with the other guard who saw it too, and we agreed we would not talk about it. I've heard that story again and again and again. So that's part of what's going on. The other thing Bruce mentioned was I've also established in my research that at least um, at three or four bases I can think of, uh, missile bases, where as soon as an incident such as Bruce described or Bob described is reported, the guards involved are shipped out. They are gone, sometimes within 24 hours. And in my opinion, it's to prevent them from talking amongst themselves, spreading rumors on base. Uh, the Air Force just, uh, you know, they can't really ship out on short notice the highly skilled uh, missile guards, or excuse me, missile uh, launch officers and missile maintenance personnel. But the guards can be replaced with other guards fairly easily fairly quickly and so the people who are actually up at ground level seeing UFOs they're usually immediately shipped out to other bases uh, probably each person to a different base so they can't still be a group to talk about these things and uh, I have many many stories to verify that that in effect was the standard operating procedure after these incidents this is standard operating procedure we're talking to Robert Salas Robert Hastings Pat McDonough and Bruce Fenstermacher will be hearing more about their encounters and observations on the other side of the Paracast. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO magazine. magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. 
want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Back with our special co-host Robert Hastings, Bruce Fenstermacher, Patrick McDonough, who we'll hear from in a few minutes in great detail, and Robert Salas. Bruce, just a quick question here. At what point did you decide to come forward with this experience? Well, primarily after seeing Robert Salas on, on Larry King quite a while ago and have, seeing his experience being much similar to mine uh, and having him kind of, I, I felt being a little bit ridiculed by one of the, the guests on Larry King. Right. Do you recall who the guest was who was ridiculing him because I kind of... No, ridiculing isn't the right word, but quest, questioning everything and, and how well Bob Salas handled it by saying, hey, I, you know, I'm just telling you what I, what I heard and saw and believe it or not, it's up to you. Yeah, Gene, I'm going to guess it was Shostak or Magaha. That's, That's usually the thinking of, yeah. I'm, or Nye. Nye the science guy, I think. It was Nye the science guy, which uh, is kind of a real sad label on him at that point. Well, but, that, uh, that, that interview, I thought he looked came out looking not too well. well Mr. Nye, I mean. Yeah, yeah. The one I'm talking about was before that. Uh, because after I saw that, I went on the website and found out that there were sightings that my experience was not unique. And uh, I think it's about time for people to come out and uh, the government to let us know what's happening. Assuming, of course, the government actually knows what's happening. I have a feeling somebody does. I love mm-hmm. clearance is well above top secret, but, not, you know, yeah. not everyone. Yeah. But that's just an opinion. Well, it's probably a very relevant one. Of course, and, and one of the questions we were going to ask later, but now that you brought it up, Bruce, um, What's your feeling about the notion of disclosure? I've had held, like most of the other guests, I've held very high clearances, and and and, and in Southeast Asia, uh, even higher, and and learned an awful lot that sometimes there's a, a reason for not disclosing things. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, if, if there are, then I would be very worried. <laughs> uh-huh. But, yeah. Uh huh. But I don't think there's. Any reason why they can't disclose some of this anyway? Patrick, we're anxious to hear about your particular case. Could you start filling us in on the details? Uh, sure, I can. Uh, I, I guess I can just start right in the beginning, uh, and I'll be very brief. Uh, you don't have to be brief. Take whatever time no, you feel is necessary. But, but at the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, I had had three years of engineering at college, and the Air Force... Uh, I went down and I joined the Air Force then uh, at the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. They saw my background. They put me in as a uh, geodetic surveyor with the 1381st Geodetic Survey Squadron. Uh, It was at a time headquartered in Florida off of Orlando Air Force Base, an Air Force Base that didn't even have a runway. Uh, But we supported, uh, uh, at the time, all these various missiles and aircraft that used internal guidance systems. And we provided the uh, latitudes and longitudes 
for these guidance systems using star observations. When the base was closed and converted over to the Navy in 1965, we formed detachments. And the detachments were at Cape, at Vandenberg, at all the main missile sites, missile bases, in which I had at that time gone to all of them, TDY. Most of the married guys, they all went and went to the detachments so they didn't have to travel very far and they could come home at night. And the single guys, we all got moved to basically Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, where we were sent out to do the new missile sites that were coming in and supplement the detachment people. They normally did what they call the check surveys. We did all the original work. And at the time of 1966 was the incident that happened with me. Uh, I was uh, chief of party of a uh, missile site survey team. I was an airman first class. Uh, I had two other airmen uh, uh, that were working for me. We were living in Conrad, Montana, putting in the uh, uh, fourth squadron in that uh, Maelstrom wing. And uh, so we would go to each missile site and we would go to the different monoliths they had established on the site. I was not assigned to any particular group at Maelstrom. Uh, I was assigned to SATAF, which was the Site Activation Task Force. And Boeing was the prime contractor. And uh, I would just go pick a missile site that I would work on that night. And we were just kind of on our own. Didn't really uh, have much to do with the... Uh, the missile wing at all. With the new sites going in, we didn't have to have guards, and so it was kind of uh, it was kind of convenient. We'd just go out to a uh, to a missile site and set up and work there for uh, two nights, and uh, then move on to the next site. Well, this one night in September 1966 was uh, where the incident uh, I saw took place. Uh, that night I was doing a I was the observer. I was uh, at a missile, the missile silo uh, blast hatch. Uh, it was wide open. They were waiting to install a missile, and it was open. And uh, I was probably maybe 25 feet from this opening at about 1.30 in the morning, and this unidentified object came in from the north, and it stopped directly over us. Uh, it was probably maybe, I mean, I'm just guessing, but probably an altitude of 300 feet. It was a round circular uh, disc, probably had a diameter of 30 to 50 feet, probably 50 feet would be more like it. Uh, it seemed to have a kind of a pulsating dim lights outlining the disc and a white light emanating from the center of it. Uh, it stayed there maybe about 20 seconds and then from a uh, dead stop, it went ahead and it just sped off with no noise to the east at a tremendous speed. Uh, there was no wind. It was it was very strange, and uh, I must say that we were uh, scared, <laughs> frightened uh, uh, from that. And as soon as it took off to the east, 
I mean, we didn't have any radios. We had nothing. We were just kind of out there in this. Uh, I had gotten a, uh, a brand new truck that afternoon. It had 18 miles on it. It was a, uh, a Chevrolet uh, pickup truck, that uh, GSA vehicle. And uh, Boeing had given it to us that afternoon because uh, our other one was getting worn out. We jumped in, grabbed our gear, uh, which is our instruments uh, that we had, just kind of grabbed them, threw them in the truck, and sped off from the missile site back towards uh, Conrad. But uh, while in route there, they were making these new missile roads to be able to carry the weight of the missiles. They were uh, uh, new base rock roads, and they had widened the roads and so on. And they had taken signs down, hadn't put the signs back up. And they came over a hill, and uh, the sign that said there was a T on the other side, a T intersection. I was speeding, unfortunately, and uh, came down the hill in the headlights. <laughs> Showed there was no more road there. It either went to the right or the left. And, oh, boy. Uh, yeah, and so I went into a uh, kind of a high-speed left turn, and the truck, uh, the two right wheels blew out, and the truck overturned. And, uh, and there it was upside down. We didn't get hurt, the three of us. And we walked for about an hour, hour and a half, to a nearby farmhouse called the Montana Highway Patrol and, and a tow truck. The uh, highway patrolman arrived to... Uh, he stated that his dispatch had received over uh, 20 reports. I think it was 28, to be honest with you, if I remember correctly, uh, from local residents that had observed a unidentified object uh, in the vicinity that night. And uh, for the next couple of days, I, I filled out reports to, to SATAF, to Boeing, uh, to the state of Montana, and... Uh, Nothing. I never heard anything about the incident from the Air Force. Uh, they didn't. Have, nobody said anything. Uh, no retribution. I kind of figured they were going to come after reimbursement for this brand new truck I totaled. Oh boy! Uh, and, and of uh, course, no confidentiality agreements. No, I did not. No, I. Uh, I didn't uh, want to really broadcast the issue uh, because I'm getting out of the service in uh, in less than two months. And uh, I had been saving my money to uh, go back to college, finish college, and not not to buy a government truck. And uh, you know, kinda, I figured uh, I'd also heard rumors that you went to the base psychiatrist if you uh, ever reported uh, things like that. So I just kind of we just kind of kept our mouth shut. Patrick, a, a couple of yeah. questions for you about the craft that you saw. Yeah. When you saw it coming in from the north, uh, was it coming in from an altitude or was it at a fixed altitude as it was coming towards you? Uh, it, it seemed like uh, it seemed like it was at the same altitude. It just uh, it just came in and stopped right above so, us. So when you say stop, what you're what, would you say that it didn't deaccelerate? It just went from full speed to full stop. Well, it, it it didn't come in as fast as it left. Uh, right. It, it came in, I would say, fairly fast. I mean, you know, like 80, 80 100 miles an hour. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it didn't, it didn't come in at the speed of light and stop. I, I'm a, I ended up getting my commercial pilot's license and other things. I, I know a little bit about aviation. 
I worked I get, on everything at, down at Edwards that Edwards had, SR-71s. I worked on all this uh, exotic stuff and uh, during my uh, four years with the Air Force. We had nothing like that. I, yeah, I guess what I'm asking, just in terms of motion of the thing, mm-hmm. uh, it comes in at a certain speed, and... I guess the the question is: Did you did you notice it deaccelerating from that speed, or did you see it come in at a certain speed and then just basically come to a full stop from full speed? Uh, you know, we're talking about one thirty in the morning. Uh, right. it, it just seemed like it just came in and stopped. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. And uh, you know, you can kind of see it slowing down. Just. Just before okay. it stopped, but that was right. about it. That's really all we really saw. Is it was, it seemed to slow and stop. About how far away was it from you, separate from altitude? You say it was an approximate altitude of 300 feet. At about what uh, what distance was it from? No, probably about 300 feet. So you were sort of generally below it. Right underneath it. Yeah, it, right it was looking. It. it was looking right down in the empty silo. Uh, okay. All right. Did you notice, and, and I realize it's all these years later, um, but I'm just equating this to one of my own personal sightings, and there are a number of similarities with one of my own personal sightings. Did you notice anything hanging from below this? Any no. kind of uh, appendages, stalks of any sort? You saw nothing like that? No, you did not. The color of the lights, you say there were dim lights out, uh, sort of on the edge of the disc and a white light emanating from the center. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the dim lights outlining the disc, were there any segments in them, or uh, was it sort of a, a solid band? It seemed, you know, I'm going by memory now, but it's sure, sure. sort of solid. Well, I mean, they were every couple feet apart, it seemed like. Okay. And was the, like the, the, maybe the, two, three feet apart. And I'm okay. guessing that the distance, the height, the altitude, it was above us, you know. So. Right, right. Sure, sure. Um, the color of the light on the edge of this, also white? No. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, my memory isn't that great anymore. But I, okay. it was either, it was either a, 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 I believe, a reddish light. I see. Did, did that light change, pulse at all, or did it seem steady? Yes, it did. It, 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 it did? It, it did seem to pulse. Okay. When the craft took off, did the brightness of either the edge lights or the center light change? Uh, I can't recall. It, just, it went so fast. It went like from a standing stop due east, and it just shot like a speed of light away. I mean, yeah. it was. It shot off. And, and you say there was no noise or wind. I presume that also when it came towards you, there was no, also no noise or wind. You didn't feel there was any air displacement from this thing? No, had not. And again, you know, here I've been doing uh, for years looking up at the stars. That's what I, that's what I did all night. Uh-huh. And uh, so, I mean, we were there looking up, you know, at the uh, celestial plane. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, when you see something move and, and lights move up there, and it's uh, it's very strange. I, I must tell you that what was going through my my mind for that 20 seconds it stayed above us was, uh, am I going to be beamed up, or am mm. I going to? You know, really, I'm serious. No, I, I said, okay. I wonder, I wonder uh, if I'll ever, you know, see my. Uh, 
brother, my sister, and my father uh, again? Uh, or is this, uh, is this, you know, I, I just didn't know what was going to happen. You sound like you're really frightened. Well, we were. Sure. And, uh, and we, that's, uh, unfortunately, uh, I would say part of the cause of the accident, getting the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah. it, it seems understandable under the circumstances. I don't know that I could have done any better. I might have done a lot worse. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwell is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Talking to Patrick McDonough and Bruce Fenstermacher and Robert Hastings and Bob Salas, talking about case histories. Just to clarify again, the object stopped, took off, but it did not do any of the crazy maneuvers that some UFOs have been reported doing. No, it did not. Okay. You know, when you see something that is at a dead standstill and then basically go to tremendous speed without acceleration, I think having seen this myself personally, that technically qualifies as a crazy maneuver for the simple reason that you have no point of reference for this. Sure. All right. Uh, every time we see something moving quickly, it has to have achieved speed through acceleration. And your eyes are used to seeing that to the extent where if you're an animator and you're animating something that is moving quickly, you actually have to build into your animation a sense of acceleration or deacceleration and deacceleration. It's usually called ease in, ease out. 
and, and that is the, the, the sign of what we would consider natural movement. So I'm guessing, Patrick, that when you saw this thing take off and fly away at this high speed and basically just go right into high speed, mm-hmm. there, there must have been part of you that was looking at this going, oh, my God, because you're just not used to seeing something like that. Is that would that be accurate? Yeah, yeah that, that would be true because, like I say, I, had, I, I worked at, uh, at, at Edwards uh, quite a few times. I had worked at the Nevada Test Site, mm-hmm. I worked at Indian Springs. I worked at Vandenberg, the Cape. I worked at all these places where we had the latest stuff. Right. And uh, I never saw anything like that. Yeah, and that's one of the things that when debunkers will attempt to call into question the credibility of people like these gentlemen we're talking with today and and I know in the, the times I've seen I know uh, that when Bob Solace was on Larry King and, and I, I forget who it was that was going after him you, you get a sense of anger and frustration that these men who are obviously very serious highly trained people and you would hope they would be sitting in nuclear launch facilities um, that they have a pretty good idea of what conventional craft looked like. Uh, even though Seth Shostak will attempt to claim that uh, these people are no more reliable a witness to an anomalous aerial phenomena than the average Joe, uh, personally I find that uh, intellectually dishonest. Also insulting, I think, to every pilot, yeah. every trained observer out there has Absolutely. to feel upset over this craziness, over this rather wrong-headed conclusion. Or maybe he's just shooting from the hip, you know, he's just making up something as he goes along, and it sounds good to him, but he's not interested in whether it has any logical reference or anything. So now, Bob, Bruce, and Patrick, in that order, these experiences, what effect have they had on your personal philosophies about these things, this topic? Bob Solis, let's start with you. Definitely had an effect after uh, you know deliberation of what, what this all might mean and what it meant. Um, I, I'm, I'm completely uh, in agreement with what uh, Robert Asin said earlier, and that is that I believe that these incidents were were messages, uh, simply messages about uh, nuclear weapons that that we really ought to consider um, going away with them. Uh, and hopefully we're making strides in that direction, but we got to keep pushing for that effort. Uh, uh, these weapons are can obviously destroy the planet and every living thing on it, and uh, that's in <laughs> nobody's interest, obviously. So uh, that, that's the major impact it's had on my life. I do want to interject one quick thing on, on what um, Pat said, and... He said that there, there were rumors that uh, if you report one of these things, you'd have to go to the psychiatrist. Well, when I, when I got to um, Wright Patterson Air Force Base in 1969, that's right after I left Malmstrom, I was ordered, strangely enough, a written order to go to the uh, base psychiatrist. <laughs> and I hadn't complained about anything, any you know mental problems or stress or anything. But, uh, so I thought it was strange, and when I got there, they would see the psychiatrist said, asked him why and uh, asked the orderly why and uh, uh, he wouldn't give me an answer so I, I said well I'm not going to go in <laughs> so I um, <laughs> I just turned around and left I, I guess I disobeyed orders but uh, you know thinking back on it I think that may have been one way that uh, I was they were trying to intimidate me and that was if I had Talk to a base psychiatrist about this incident. Uh, 
they could have uh, used that against me at some later time, I think. But they never did, did they? Never did, no. Bruce, I'm going to pose the same question to you. Okay, fine. A, a little hard time to think about it. And, and before this incident, I was very skeptical of uh, anything related to UFOs. And I won't tell you what I thought about people that uh, were taken by them or seeing them. But uh, after this incident, I've become a lot more open-minded. Uh, I felt I was an observer, or a, a reporter for this incident. And, and since I didn't get to see, see it, Mm -hmm. uh, what I reported to me are facts, and I talked to the people, and I believe they saw what they saw. But it made me a lot more open-minded about uh, people's experiences. And uh, as I've done research, it's it's even made me more open-minded. And, and like uh, both Roberts, uh, I think that uh, someone's keeping an eye on our uh, nuclear capabilities, and uh, we we better be careful. Did you um did you speak with your family members about this right after it happened? Yeah, yes I did. My wife has believed it and is interested in it. You know, I still to this day am not a hundred percent confident of what it is, but I'm pretty much ninety nine percent confident of what it isn't, and it narrows it down to what I think it is. And uh, they they believed it and uh you know, my brothers and sisters they smile and whether they believe it or not I don't don't push it. I haven't told a lot of people for fear of being thought one of those, quote, kooks, unquote. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't. We certainly don't think of you that way. Well, uh, uh, it's <laughs> nice to know there are people that have been through this. And some of us take it very seriously and don't try to attribute sourcing to it. What, what you actually said, uh, Bruce, I think is, is key in that you're not sure what it was, but you're 99% sure of what it wasn't. And, and I think that is the exact appropriate way to explain this. And, and that's something that we're very, very concerned about on the Paracast, in that we, uh, I think a lot of people who are involved in this field come into it with essentially preconceived notions of, of sourcing of this, of motivation, and essentially have their minds made up about what is going on. And uh, one of the things I think is interesting, and, and even though, you know, Bob, you've expressed an opinion about what you think the message was, and I think that's extremely valid, what you've said. At the same time, uh, I think that the three of you sound like you're being very realistic in terms of your own appraisal of what has gone on. And we really respect that. I think that people need to hear voices like yours to have an understanding that, we don't know what's going on, but that's separate from the fact that we know that something is going on. So, Patrick, now that question put to you, how did this affect your personal philosophy about this? Well, uh, you know, I, I thought about it, and I had, I, I basically thought they were, whoever's in the, these uh, UFOs that are visiting us were really uh, sending us a message regarding the uh, nuclear uh, catastrophe that could happen and that they could possibly uh, I hope uh, I hope we never use those uh, weapons of uh, mass destruction and then then you think about it and you say well you know here Chuck Yeager in 1947 exceeded the speed of sound which was you know around 700 miles an hour and and then in 1965 66 the SR-71 was going Mach 4 uh, four times the speed of sound. Maybe someday that 
you know, the speed of light uh, could be also, uh, we think now we can't exceed it uh, because of uh, Einstein's uh, theory of relativity, but, you know, it's possible that some other uh, civilization out there could, in fact, uh, uh, be able to exceed the speed of light, and uh, many times, perhaps. And, I mean, there's hundreds of uh, billions of stars in, in our own Milky Way galaxy, so uh, who's to say there's not intelligent life out there that uh, could possibly be traveling here? You know, if this is Robert Hastings, it, it, yeah. if I could interject something uh, regarding the speed of the objects and uh, the possibility that the speed of light might be exceeded at some point, um, pursuant to all of the comments that have been made in the last 15 minutes, um, I've interviewed uh, half a dozen FAA controllers who were at Malmstrom Air Force Base in the 1960s when the incident that Bob Salas described occurred, and in fact, my father was working at the Sage Building. I've talked to uh, half a dozen of these FAA controllers who said that they were tracking UFOs on a semi-regular basis during that era. Uh, mm -hmm. These persons have have said that uh, they were tracking objects faster, uh, traveling faster than the SR-71. Uh, they were actually cleared, as a certain number of FAA controllers were cleared for uh, the reality, the existence of the SR-71, while it was still classified, because they needed to know when one of these things came across their screen what they were looking at. And I've talked to a former high-level FAA administrator who confirmed that uh, in the late 60s, even before the, the SR-71's existence was officially verified, uh, FAA controllers were aware of it because they needed to know what they were and yet these controllers at Malmstrom have told me, uh, I've devoted a whole chapter in my book to their testimony that they were tracking objects that were zigzagging. They said they would just pop up out of nowhere as if they either came into our space time or uh, suddenly were, you know, they were in stealth mode and suddenly came out of stealth mode, but they would pop up out of nowhere and then zigzag hundreds of miles uh, in just a second or two. And uh, these persons have said, you know, we would report it to the uh, the uh, Air Defense Command uh, controllers at Malmstrom. You know, they, these guys were civilian FAA, and uh, we would never get any feedback. Uh, one of them told me, I can't remember the John's name off the top of my head, but he said when he reported this object that was traveling faster than the SR-71 to uh, his counterpart over at ADC, the Air Defense Command, uh, the controller said to him over the phone, yeah, I see it, but UFOs don't exist, do they? And it started, <laughs> started laughing, you know. So it was an inside joke. Yeah, you know, it's there, but it's not there, you know. Pursuant to the comments of uh, traveling faster than the speed of light, uh, it's actually, many people know this, but over the last 20 years, a number of theoretical physicists at major universities have come up with new theories of how the universe is put together and how it works. And there's a, there's a concept now called higher dimensional space or hyperspace, which is considered uh, absolutely real by many, many leading theorists right now. And in effect, um, it creates a new matrix or a new environment for our universe, our space-time to be embedded in. And uh, if indeed, uh, for the purposes of our discussion, if indeed hyperspace exists, then uh, an advanced race who knows its existence and has developed a technology based on that knowledge, they can actually leave, theoretically, our universe, go into hyperspace where they can travel multiple times the 
satellite and then drop down into our universe very far away in a very, very short period of time. So basically so, then, Robert, we can then travel at warp nine, just like they say in Star Trek. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net you've entered another dimension you've entered the paracast Talking to Robert Hastings, Bob Salas, Patrick Lucatano, and Bruce Fenstermacher. And now we're talking about the theories, the growing theories about ways to travel faster than well, the speed of life. So here's the thing. And Patrick, in the description that you've made of the, the fact that you saw this craft come in making no noise, mm -hmm. no movement of air, and you saw it leave at high speed, no noise, no sonic boom. I have a personal sighting where I watched a craft in daylight, broad daylight, hovering above my house, go from a perfect standstill to full speed within no time and actually disappeared from sight within seconds. Now, I've seen military aircraft at close range at a few air shows, and I'm well aware of the fact that when a jet fighter is moving at fast speed, um, very often you will, by the time you actually hear the plane, it's out of sight. But you do hear it. And uh, I posited on the Paracast that there's a possibility, a good possibility, I'd go even so far as to categorize it as a probability, that when these things are moving at high speed, that they are not fully material at that point. Hence, no movement of air. Hence, no sonic boom. That's because they're not actually interacting with the air anymore because they're not completely solid at that point. I think there's a clue there, and and the more people we spoke we speak with, and, and 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 we really appreciate your coming on the show, and 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 providing that detail. Uh, to me, it's it's a further confirmation of the idea that when these things start to move at high speed, they are not at that point playing by the rules of physics that we know. They're not completely solid, and I think that's why there is no movement of air, there is no displacement of air, there is no sound because they're not completely here at that point. And I think that there's a clue there, and, and, and Robert Hastings, I think that ties right in to the idea of changing the dimensional construct of that thing when it's moving at high speed that allows it to do things that our current science, perhaps on the very edge of theory, can postulate, but we don't yet understand. 
among the many things that we don't yet understand. So I thank you, Patrick, for providing that detail because to me it's, a, it's another piece of the puzzle that maybe one day we can try to, to, to unravel. Bob Sauce, I have a question for you, given that of, of, our, um, of our direct witness guests, you're the first one that has gone public. By you doing that, have you had other people come forward to you to tell you about witness uh, about experiences they've had because of your oh, visibility? Oh yes, uh, I've had many witnesses. Of course, I've, I've been speaking at conferences, and uh, had people come up to me and, <laughs> and tell about their stories. And one in particular, uh, here in California, um, a gentleman came up to me uh, what, when I was in uh, Denver. I think it was, and uh, he said when he was a boy, he was. Uh, he was near, uh, I think it was Beale, Beale, B-E-A-L-E, okay. I think. I'm not sure exactly where that was or where, but he, he talked uh, many times about seeing these objects come in and uh, chased by, uh, I think it was, uh, to that time, there were Air Force chief planes uh, going after him and, uh, hmm. and actually seeing one up close. So, um, yeah, I've had uh, a lot of people come. Any other military witnesses approach you because of your um, background? Yes, uh, we've had other witnesses come forward. Robert Hastings and I have, have worked uh, and talked to each other for many, many years, and uh, uh, we've exchanged uh, names of witnesses that have come forward. Some are individual witnesses, and uh, it, it, it's difficult to corroborate all the stories that we get. So uh, some pan out, some don't. But um, uh, yeah, over the years we've had uh, many, many military people come to us, and uh, many of those are, are uh, itemized in the Roberts uh, book, UFOs and Nukes. Bob, I don't want to scare Bruce and Patrick mm -hmm. with the question I'm about to ask you. So guys, this is not my intention. Since you've come forward and and gone public with your experience, has there been any subsequent follow-up on the part of the military uh, to get you to stop talking? Uh, in my case, no. Um, I can't. The only thing uh, was that incident I told you about at uh, our Air Force Base where I was directed to go see the base psychiatrist. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Other, other than that, I've, I've had, had no contact with the Air Force. Uh, there was one time when I went to Great Falls after I went public, and uh, I talked to a local newspaper there, the Tribune, and, uh, and they... They talked to the uh, Office of Information at the base, and uh, and they said no, and they they'll stick by you know their own story, and uh, they're they're not going to comment on my story. So that, that's the only real contact I've had with the Air Force, and uh, but other than that, no intimidation and of of any sort. Yoan brings back that NDA and says, "Hey, Bob, you did the wrong thing." No. This is Rod Hastings. I'd like to uh, address that question. I've over 35 years now. I have interviewed over 100 either uh, missile launch officers or targeting officers or uh, missile maintenance personnel or missile guards. Not one of them over 35 years has gotten said, uh, gotten back to me and said that they were intimidated after they talked to me or, or someone approached them and told them to shut up. I think it's a question that the Air Force realizes if one of these people are going to come forward and talk 
about it. If the Air Force tries to lean on them or otherwise intimidate them, it might it might blow up in their faces, and these people will, will go right to the press and talk about not only their own UFO experience, but the fact that the Pentagon tried to silence them. So I'm guessing, but in my view, that's one of the reasons, certainly, that right. the Pentagon is not approaching these people. Uh, the only person that's ever been leaned on, so to speak, after they talked with me was uh, a man named Chet Lytle, who was a civilian engineer, worked for the Atomic Energy Commission. And at the time that I interviewed him in 1998, and he told me many amazing things about UFOs around nuclear weapons sites, uh, he was subsequently contacted by someone from an agency whom he would not identify. His company, engineering company, still has contracts with the military. Uh, and so they used that apparently as leverage to get him to shut up. But when, when I went back to ask him some follow-up questions, uh, he explained all this to me, uh, but wouldn't let me record him, whereas previously I had two hours of him on tape. That's the only instance of uh, any of my witnesses, any of my sources ever being uh, subsequently, you know, leaned on, so to speak. All right. Well, I guess Patrick and Bruce would be happy to hear that. Yeah, well, I was, this, this is Bruce, I was concerned and expressed that to Robert Hastings in emails and and between him talking to Robert and running across a former flight commander, I decided that it's worth a uh, very, very minor risk, which you know, I'm sure it's just a minor one. I would also agree, possibly listening to you, Robert, that the effect <laughs> to the public of having somebody suddenly quieted down would not be very helpful. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have one more session with Robert Hastings, Bob Salas, Patrick McDonough, and Bruce Fenstermacher. And we've talked about their sightings, about UFOs over nuclear installations, UFOs displaying incredible maneuverability trying to pinpoint where and what these things are i presume all of you at this point feel there's something real to it but let's go back to the beginning bob Salas, what did you think about ufos prior to seeing one did you just dismiss the whole idea maybe not think of it at all Pretty much, uh, you know, I was um, pretty much a, a career Air Force officer. I I really didn't think much about it at all. The, there were stories in the newspaper of the Great Falls Tribune when I was up there and of lights in the sky and just disregarded them pretty much. Of course, after my incident, I felt uh, 180 degrees different about it and certainly 
at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well convinced that these objects are not from planet Earth. Um, and uh, other than that, we, uh, it's, it's speculation, of course. They might you don't want to get involved in uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the ongoing speculation about where specifically they might come from. I can speculate with the, the best of them, but <laughs> you know, I, as far as facts, uh, you know, I had no additional facts to add as to where they might be from. Bob Salas, how do you feel about the mainstream media's treatment of this topic, given that you've appeared uh, with Robert Hastings on, on a show like Larry King? How do you feel the mainstream uh, media is handling this? Not very well. Um, with all due respect to Larry King, uh, even on those shows, uh, even though he, he did focus on the topic, and hopefully he'll focus on it again, uh, I really didn't get a chance to go into a lot of detail. A lot of his guests don't get the, a chance to really express uh, in detail and depth uh, what their stories are about. So uh, part of the problem here is the media still considers this uh, something to ridicule and, uh, and they're therefore keeping uh, good witnesses from coming forward. Uh, so that's still a problem. Uh, we have to fight uh, witnesses like... Uh, like you have on the show right now, we have to keep fighting and coming forward and, 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 and talking about this in a serious vein. Uh, hopefully that will happen. I think David and I both agree that the fact that you folks are on the show is going to help that. Bruce, did you have any feelings at all about UFOs one way or the other before your encounter? Uh, yes, I did. A little while ago, you described the narrow-minded individual that uh, is a non-believer. Well, that was kind of me before the incident. So, <laughs> so afterwards, I become a whole lot more open-minded. And uh, as the Roberts and the Pat and Pat have discussed, I, I firmly believe. Uh, that someone's here watching our nuclear uh, capabilities and wishing it or telling us to be careful. Patrick, what about your feelings about this entire subject? Well, I had actually heard, uh, you know, about uh, UFOs uh, sightings in the uh, Southwest uh, prior to my uh, one incident that I had. And I had worked on hundreds and hundreds of uh, various missile sites during my uh, time there in the Air Force. I had heard about them in the uh, Sandia uh, area and so on, and when I was working in, in those areas, why I I was always looking, but I never saw anything, and I kind of uh, felt, well, maybe they do exist, maybe they don't. I, I really had no confirmation at that point up until the incident uh, that I had uh, in uh, 1966, and I kind of kept it to myself. I uh, after I got out of the Air Force and went back to college, I joined the uh, Navy uh, intelligence uh, program, which I only retired from uh, 2003. I had up to 2003 the highest clearance that they have in the United States. I always wanted to uh, get read into one of those programs, but you know, I, I never uh, walked out and, uh, and did to uh, find out any uh, further information. I never really talked about it in the service. I didn't want to uh, go see a psychiatrist and have my clearance pulled. I really enjoyed doing what I did. You know, so you, you think about it and you say, you go back and, and you, you think, I, I thought they possibly exist. I didn't think people were uh, talking about uh, UFOs and then and being in the media and subjecting themselves to ridicule about it. I, but uh, and then when I did uh, have that one 
experience. Uh, I definitely believe in him now. Well, uh, on the Paracast, we want to we want to thank you so much, Robert Hastings, for you bringing these fine gentlemen to our show. Uh, we've been wanting to get uh, Captain Salas on for for quite a long time. I'm thrilled. First thing we were able to do. So Gene and I are both just ecstatic. Captain Sauce, you've come on the show, and Bruce and Patrick, uh, we don't know how to thank you enough for, for coming forward with your stories on the show. You know, we really appreciate the fact that, that you gentlemen have come, have come forward with this. We realize uh, that, you know, it's, it's a stressful thing to do. People uh, do view this as entertainment. Uh, we do not. We think that this is something serious, and uh, we appreciate the fact that you have uh, had the courage to come forward and talk about this. Uh, just so you know, I personally, knowing what I've seen, what I've experienced, I always have quite a bit of trepidation talking about these things, um, and especially trying to do it in a serious fashion. And, uh, you know, I just want to personally thank you for, for doing this, and, and I can't say thanks enough to Robert Hastings for deciding to bring these gentlemen to the Paracast. We, we very much appreciate your participation in our forums. I think you've uh, added tremendous value to what we're doing, um, you know, serious intellectual value, and uh, that's it. I can't say thank you enough, so I guess I've said it enough there. Gene. Okay. Hey, I like to be called upon. I just have to echo what David said. I very much appreciate working with Robert and watching the way he assembled this episode, finding the right people who can express sincere stories about what has happened. And I guess we have to look at what we're going to do from here. We know these are probably just the beginning of the floodgate of cases. You've been exploring UFOs and nukes for many years. We know there are cases all around the world. And I guess the other thing is, having written the book, having seen these gentlemen come forth, Robert, with their case histories, are you finding it easier to get information now than you used to? After my appearance on Larry King in July of 2008, uh, that greatly helped uh, have a much higher profile than previously, even though I'd been speaking on the lecture circuit for 27 years. Uh, that was a national audience, and that seemed to open, um, you know, some new opportunities. Uh, both I was approached by both uh, uh, Pat and Bruce following that program, so that helped. Um, but it's still, uh, I think it's still a taboo subject. Uh, I, I made it my policy many years ago never to approach active Air Force personnel, even though uh, they presumably would be the persons who would have the freshest, the most up-to-date information about these types of incidents. I just don't want to be responsible for wrecking someone's career in the military. So uh, I, I wait for people to come to me or I seek out people who've left the uh, service who, who feel comfortable about talking about this. Uh, hopefully with shows such as this and uh, other media, media coverage comes in bits and starts, but uh, of this subject, it's going to gain more and more acceptance uh, in the next few years, hopefully. Okay, well, we know that this show is being heard around the world the Paracast, which amazes us every time I get letters from Australia, the Netherlands, Japan, David and I just, I think we have to look with amazement that the show is being accepted the way it is. So, okay, let's look at this further. If someone out there has been a military officer or worked as a civilian for a military agency, has a significant case to report, 
How, Robert, did they get in touch with you to help them along in resolving this and getting the information out there? Uh, my website is ufohastings.com, and I have uh, the ability. You have the ability to contact me uh, via email by going to that website. Again, I'm very interested in hearing from anyone who has information they wish to divulge. Uh, I, there are unfortunately BS artists in the world, and so uh, I don't want to hear from those people. Uh, if, if I think you're not on the level and you're pulling on my leg, I'm going to be very blunt with you. And the people that I do talk with, uh, who I will publish their stories if I think they're credible, I want your military service records, your DD-214, and so on. So I'm very open to contacts, uh, but... You know, I'm going to be very skeptical until I'm convinced that what you're telling me is on the level, uh, at which point you will have my uh, everlasting gratitude. Now, there are so many fakers in this field. Some maybe you're just misled, deluded. Others are doing it deliberately. Do you ever feel that maybe that's another technique from the government, the silence group, whoever they are, to cast ridicule on the subject, and that is to fill the pool with garbage unquestionably uh, disinformation is out there um, this is a subject for another program but uh, years ago I helped expose the MJ-12 documents which are unquestionably fraudulent in my mind more recently uh, two of the people involved with disseminating those documents uh, Captain Robert Collins who's now retired and uh, Sergeant Richard Doty who's now retired uh, have been disseminating further disinformation uh, Collins in particular put a bogus UFO incident uh, at a missile site at Ellsworth Air Force Base on the web not too long ago. I'm currently writing a follow-up article in which I'm going to challenge these two guys and just call them for what they are, which is liars. And uh, I've been saying that publicly for 27 years, uh, there are people like Collins and Doty who are trying to muddy the water. I'm presuming these are official disinformation agents, and they need to be challenged at every turn because they're they're raising questions and they're undercutting the credibility of legitimate sources such as the people who are the program today. Now, I just point out to our listeners, if you go to forum.thepowercast.com, there's a long thread there where Robert Hastings quotes letters from Collins, emails, where various issues are discussed. And we also get regular mailings from him. He was on the show once. We get regular mailings from him. Of course, these people don't want to say that they are government operatives. And that's the other point, too. You feel they're doing it with official sanctions. Do you think maybe possibly they're just jokesters playing a game? Um, I, I know enough about the original operation that was being run out of Kirtland OSI in the 1980s to know that this was an officially sanctioned operation. Uh, they targeted Linda Mooton Howe. They sucked in Bill Moore, who admitted that he was spying mm-hmm. on researchers and disseminating uh, information to them. And uh, I know at that point it was an officially sanctioned disinformation operation. Uh, what I'm seeing now more recently from both of them it seems to be more or the same, uh, whether or not they are still officially tasked with those, uh, the spreading of the lies that they're spreading, I do not know. But in my uh, article that I'm writing, and as you mentioned on the, the uh, email exchange I had with Collins, I've just uh, basically said, you know, you're a liar, 
if you think that's libelous or slanderous, then you should challenge me in a court of law. You know, the only way these characters uh, are going to have to be forced to speak the truth is if they're in a court of law under oath, under penalty of perjury. And uh, in the meantime, I'm, until, until it comes to that, I'm going to keep calling them liars and disinformation agents, which is exactly what they are. Uh, the article that I'm working on is titled Operation Bird Droppings, and that's a reference to the, to the fact that <laughs> the these uh, people were given the names Condor and Falcon, so uh, Operation Bird Droppings is a reference to the little nice. present they're leaving all over the web for the uh, rest of us to step in. And that should be on. Uh, that should be online. I'm going to disseminate it to several websites within the next week or two. Now you mentioned MJ12. You know, of course, that Stanton Friedman believes that at least some of these MJ12 documents are fake. But you're saying blanket, they're all fake. I'm. I smell another show here. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, yes. I have a lot of respect for Stan, but I think he's missed the boat on this one. I think he's been yeah. taken for a ride. And again, you know, this, this debate can go on forever. The only way to get these guys to really cough up the truth is to put them in a court of law under oath. Yeah. Well, one thing, of course, that self alarms in my mind was the inside joke, where one of the members of MJ12 is Donald Menzel one of the notorious UFO skeptics of many, many years ago. And you think, well, okay, on the one hand, you could say, yeah, he played that role in public, but privately he believed in them. On the other hand, by putting his name there, it could be just an inside joke, just kind of saying, hey, folks, we're pulling your leg. And so we put his name among all the people in this particular document. Right. And, uh, again, I don't presume to know. I mean, I understand your point as to what is the truth. I don't know. Um, I just know that Dodie and Collins and uh, Bill Moore have been caught in enough lies to know that uh, this is bogus. They're, they've been doing someone's bidding. Um, you know, in my view, in a country such as ours, uh, where supposedly this is a government of the people, by the people, for the people, what we've had in the last six decades are monumentally important decisions being made by a handful of people at the Pentagon and the intelligence communities as to what they're going to let the public know uh, regarding UFOs. And uh, that's not the way democracy works, in my view. Uh, obviously, this is an unprecedented situation with potentially uh, dire consequences if, if the announcement is not handled properly. So all of those things need to be done very judiciously and consciously, but facts need to come out, and uh, it's been over half a century that uh, government's been allowed to get away with lying to the American public, in my view, that that should end uh, as quickly as possible. Now, do I foresee possibly a sequel to UFOs and nukes? Well, uh, I was discussing uh, before the program with Pat the fact that because I am getting new uh, accounts from people who have approached me after my, my appearance on Larry King that <laughs> I'm either going to have to write a sequel or I'm going to have to uh, fine-tune the first book in the second printing and add some of the new material and delete some of the less important material in the first printing. I haven't decided quite yet to do uh, what to do on that on that matter. On the PowerCast this evening, We've been talking to Bruce Fenstermacher, Patrick McDonough, and Bob Salas, all of whom saw UFOs years ago. Very impressive UFO cases, made more impressive by the fact that these people have superlative military and civilian records. 
And we also have to thank, once again, Robert Hastings, author of UFOs and Nukes, author of a number of great writings and one of our favorite participants in the Paracast forums for making this happen. You can check Robert's information out at ufohastings.com. We will include also that in the link at the Paracast. So if you want to get in touch with him with more information, maybe some more military people, former military people want to come forth, that's where you can do it. Gentlemen, thank you all so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks, folks. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.